the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Tuesday, December 23rd. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show we'll be looking back at some of the big business stories of 2014 and projecting out to next year to see what might be on the radar. I'm joined in studio by colleagues Tom Lyons, Mark Paul and Laura Slattery and by phone from Brussels by our European correspondent Suzanne Lynch. Tom, we might start with you. You've done a, a review of the winners and losers for the year for the newspaper, which will be appearing in the coming days. Um, and it was a good year for the Collison brothers. Tell us about that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, John and Patrick Collison are annoyingly still only in their 20s, uh, yet they managed to raise uh, 57 million euros earlier this year. Uh, and that values their startup, which is only four years old, at a, an incredible $3.5 billion. Yeah, I think it's worth restating that figure, actually. $3.5 billion. It's extraordinary. It's, just to put it in context, uh, it's bigger than Paddy Power, which has been going, I think, 20 years. And, and if you trace it back to its original roots, it's, go, it's been going even longer. Uh, so the, they now are in partnership deals with the best brands in Silicon Valley. Apple's working with them. Twitter's working with them. Facebook's working with them. And it's all about how they've developed this developer-friendly way to accept and make payments online really simply, Kieran. And uh, it, it just goes to show you, I mean, these guys... Their company's worth 3.5 billion. Uh, I mean, they're well on course uh, in their 20s to bypass, you know, Dermot Desmond and Dennis O'Brien and these type of guys who took, you know, who took until their 50s, until they got really, really rich. Yeah, sure. It's an extraordinary uh, success story. And you've written about them quite a bit on and off over the years. What What is the secret to their success? I think they're just they're, they're two very smart guys and I think that they complement each other. And because they're brothers, they're very close friends. Uh and they seem to be people who can spot an opportunity and when they see this opportunity, really go for it. And certainly with Stripe, they could see that, you know, that the traditional way of doing things, paying with PayPal and this type of thing, that, that if there's going to be more online retailing and more online sales, that maybe there could be a simpler way of doing things and uh, Stripe has really come into its own. Okay, now, uh, 2014 also marked the comeback of Donald Slattery. Uh, once of the aviation world, then he went into uh, investment funding, if you like, with Claret Capital. Then the crash came. A lot of the funds that he was invested in lost money. A lot of those clients lost money. And he made his way back into aircraft leasing. And he's had a hugely successful takeoff for his IPO this year. Tell us about that. Oh, absolutely, Kieran. I mean, he's been one of the big success stories of 2014. I mean, if you thought back to 20. 2009, 2010, you might have put him in the losers list because everything was going wrong from uh, now everything seems to be going right. Uh, his aircraft leasing business Avalon, it had it was courted by Chinese investors during the year who were seeking to buy it and uh, it, it, it floated uh, earlier this month. Uh, it was valued at 1.6 billion dollars uh, which is 1.3 billion euros which is slightly less than the market hoped for but it's still a pretty impressive result and uh his stake in it, Kieran, is worth, you know, at least uh, $20 million, possibly more when you take into account the potential for bonuses and for salary. And this is a company that's only, what, three, four years old? It, barely. Uh, I mean, it's really only come into its own in the last two or three years. And uh, it just seems to have got its timing right uh, in terms of securing good quality planes, uh, calling the markets right as they recovered. Uh, it was prepared for a recovery. And uh, he's just done incredibly well. And he's really back on top after after some pretty tough years. I think it's fair to say that the biggest loser in the year just gone 
is Sir Anthony O'Reilly, once the probably the wealthiest or one of the wealthiest Irish people ever, certainly one of the most successful business people ever. But this year has marked a, a particular low from given that AIB moved against him on his personal debts. Uh, absolutely, and it's a, it's a story, Kieran. I know you've written about it a lot yourself, uh, but like. Sir Anthony O'Reilly, I mean, his it really all became very public this year. Uh, when AIB moved against him, I mean, they called him insolvent three or four times in court. I mean, his own one of his own former newspapers, the Irish Independent, went as far as to call him broke on the front page. I mean, it was pretty humiliating stuff for somebody who is one of the greats of Irish business. You uh, should remind listeners, of course, that he was effectively ousted from independent news and media, wasn't he, by Dennis O'Brien? He was, yeah, he was pushed out by a combination of Dennis O'Brien and uh, Dermot Desmond. Um, and, you know, he saw, first of all, Waterford Wedge, Wedgwood come crashing down. And then he saw independent news and media come, come straight after it. And that left him with a big pile of debts and not enough assets to cover them, which is, which is why this all came spilling out into the public after him trying to broker a deal behind the scenes. Mark Paul, you covered the Sir Anthony O'Reilly uh, story earlier this year. Why did AIB decide to move against him this time? Because they were afraid that uh, some of his other banks uh, might get in front of them uh, in the queue to, 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 to take a chunk out of his assets um, um, if they were to file uh, uh, judgments ahead of him. I mean, Tony O'Reilly always prided himself on uh, on, on, on his word and his honour. And um, before this whole thing bubbled to the surface, his, his, his line with AIB when he was in negotiations with them, and his negotiations were led by Bernard Summers, um, a former AIB executive, um, his line was always, look, my word is my bond and I will and I will repay my debts. Uh, AIB uh, got to the stage where um, they felt that the process was being dragged out a little bit and they thought that if, uh, you know, there, there was nine other banks, sorry, nine including AIB, uh, to which uh, Tony O'Reilly owes money, they thought that if they got ahead of them in the queue, if, they, if someone else got a judgment on his assets, that that, um, that, that, that they would lose out. So they uh, they pulled the trigger and, and they, they got the, the judgments against him in the summer um, and now all of his assets are on the market and I suppose one of the, uh, I suppose one one of the in, in the last couple of weeks, um, um, we've seen the price of oil go down and down and down, and that's had a really bad effect on Providence Resources. One of his uh, really saleable uh, assets that he has. I mean, Providence Resources has lost two thirds of its market value over the last year. His son Tony Junior, of course, the chief executive there. Do we know precisely what assets he's disposed of to date? Um, well, he's disposed of some property assets. Um, there is a there is a firm offer supposedly on the table for Castle Martin, his beloved uh, stud farm and home in in, in Kildare. Where his parents are buried? Uh, where his parents are buried and where one of his grandchildren is also buried. Um, so that should fetch about £30 million. That will go uh, towards his uh, his creditors. His uh, his home in Glandor, his holiday home in Glandor, uh, Shorecliffe it is called, um, that's been sold to a London Irish businessman, a name unknown. Uh, uh, that's gone. Uh, that, this, that deal hasn't closed yet. Um, there's also one of his few unencumbered assets is, I suppose, a bit of a blast from his past, Fitzwilton, which is an old industrials group. Um, it owns Renix, a motorway signage company, and it owns uh, bits and bobs. It has a bit in a, in a, in a, in a UK financial services company. Um, that's unencumbered, so it's not pledged to anybody, um, but uh, he has pledged to sell that as well. Um, and then, of course, then there is, uh, you know, if his stake in, in, in Providence Resources uh, comes into play, well, that put the whole company into play, uh, you know, at a time when it's trying to tie down a very, very uh, big commercial deal over its Barry Row oil prospect. Um, Tom, come back to you. Uh, let's chat about John Tierney of Irish Water, because I, I think fair to say that it was a cascade of negative headlines uh, during the year in relation to Irish Water. Why was that? 
Well, I, I think, Kieran, it was, it, 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 was, it was just one thing after another. I mean, we had uh, huge controversy around the bonuses that, 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 that staff were being paid in Irish water at a time when, you know, other people are, are really having to face the realities of austerity. Uh, so there's the bonus culture. You had then things like, you know, them spending €55,000 on a staff gym, uh, which also drove people mad. You had the sheer hundreds of millions being spent on various consultants, uh, which again, people mm. started raising questions about value for money here. And then I think you had it against this this bigger sort of macroeconomic background, Kieran, which was that that there was a camel's back, which had been quite, you know, the public's kind of had been beaten with with the universal social charge, with increased taxes, uh, which would, would reduce services. And then suddenly you had this company going into people's, right beside people's homes. And it was an opportunity for, for people who are disaffected and who have been, who don't feel that the recovery is reaching them uh, to object to things and to object to it quite strenuously. Was all of this John Tierney's fault? I mean, this is a construct of the government as well, wasn't it? Oh, I think that blaming him entirely for it is wrong. Uh, I mean, the reality is that it seems to have been poorly taught through from day one. Uh, and it does seem that on his board, I mean, there's been questions raised about the qualifications of certain members of his board. There's been questions raised about how closely uh, the various government ministers who've overlooked, uh, overseen this project, I mean, how closely were they monitoring it and keeping an eye on costs? And uh, I think it's really taken the government by surprise, uh, just how big a mess this whole quango has become. Fair to say it was also a dreadful year for Harry Crosby, the impresario who gave us the Point Depot back in the day and also the Borgosh Energy Theatre, uh, but has effectively lost everything. Well, no, he's not that far off it, Kieran. Uh, uh, no, everything is relative, uh, but he certainly is somebody who, in his time, did many great things for the city. Uh, but we saw a very uh, public court case uh, where NAMO was seeking a judgment of 77 million euros against him. And we saw NAMO raise uh, objections against him under 11 different headings, questioning about large payments to family members, uh, failing to disclose key assets worth cumulatively millions. Uh, and this really damaged his reputation. And we should say that Crosby has denied any wrongdoing, hasn't he? Oh, he, he has, absolutely. And he, he says that he is waiting to clear his name. Uh, but these are very serious allegations for a state agency to be making against an individual. So we'll have to wait and hear what he says. But uh, it, it certainly does seem the case that, you know, that there, that there, that there was assets which NAMA appears not to have known about. And then suddenly they started appearing on the scene. And how do you see that playing out in 2015? Well, I think it's going to be a tough year for him. I think, um, you know, there's going to be more court cases. Uh, I think we've seen him lose a lot of his empire. I mean, we saw what he called the barbarous sale of the Borgash Energy Theatre taking place uh, to uh, John and Bernie Gallagher, who bought it for 28 million. So he's pretty much had his empire deconstructed. And the question is, where does it go now uh, in terms of Harry Crosby launching a fight back against NAMA? And whether does does NAMA move to enforce the 77 million euro judgment? If it does, uh, this is really, really bad news for Harry Crosby. Mark Paul, we'll switch to retail and specifically grocery. You've been covering that this year. Um, Let me just uh, sum it up in this way, if I may. Bad year, Tesco. Good year for German discounters and farewell to Superquin. 
Yeah, farewell to Super Queen indeed. The brand was uh, was killed off finally in February by Musgrave um, and the owners of Super Value and Centra. Um, the 24 Super Queen stores, most of them Dublin-based, were all rebranded as Super Value. Uh, in that has given Musgrave a very big foothold in the capital for the first time, hasn't it? It has indeed, and it's also put them right on the verge of toppling Tesco as the number one uh, uh, grocer. What kind of market shares are we talking about now? Well, uh, uh, Super Value has 24.5 and uh, uh, Tesco is just below a quarter share of the market on 24.9 in the last figures. Uh, now, the trajectory has been with uh, Super Value all the way. It's been b- basically holding steady when, when you add up the old Super Value market share with the, with the Super Queen market share. But Tesco was lo- losing about uh, market share at about 8% a quarter uh, until quite recently. It's slowed in recent weeks, so maybe the worst is over for Tesco. and um, The sales declines are, are, are starting to slow down. Um, but it could still happen in 2015 that uh, Super Value could topple Tesco as the number one grocer in the country, and that's a big problem for Tesco. I mean, it's a big calling card to say you're the, you're, you're, you're the biggest grocer. Um, it has stepped up its advertising spend massively in recent months. Um, recent figures uh, uh, from Nielsen suggest that it's, uh, it's doubled its advertising spend uh, in, in, the, in the Irish market in the run up to Christmas. So it's not going to give up its crown without a fight. Um, it's been a really, really terrible year, not just in Ireland for it, but for the company at a corporate level. I mean, they've had uh, a new chief executive in the UK, uh, Dave Lewis, who was brought in from uh, from Unilever, where his nickname was Drastic Dave, for the, uh, the sort of turnaround measures that he, that he introduced. And Tesco really needs to Go back to basics. It's been squeezed on both sides. It's it's been squeezed. Three qu- profit warnings as a group this year. Is that three, right? three profit warnings as a group and a sort of a quasi accounting scandal. Um, and they found a hole in their accounts, which was uh, which was to do with the way they they recorded uh, uh, sales and 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 and, um, and and costs and and, and in which periods they record them. Um, and they had to keep they had to keep ticking that figure up and telling the market, sorry, we got it wrong. It's now two hundred twenty five million. Sorry, we got it wrong. It's now two hundred sixty eight. And uh, and just before Christmas, there about a week before Christmas. Um, um, JP Morgan put out a, a statement saying they think it's actually £320 million. So the bad news uh, isn't over on that front for Tesco. And big question marks now over the legacy of Sir Terry Leahy, uh, the former chief ex- executive, who had led this expansion globally, particularly in the US, where it was a complete disaster. He did, and they, they took an enormous write-down of over a billion pounds on that uh, expansion into the US. And he had, um, basically, the, the, the die had been cast before Terry Leahy stepped down. I mean, people have often described him as the uh, the Alex Ferguson of, of of retailing, uh, you know, when Alex Ferguson left Manchester United, the die was cast already for for, for them, and 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 the same for Tesco, and um, the next guy that came in, uh, uh, Phil Clark. Uh, he didn't last long at all. He lasted about eighteen months, um, and uh, and now their, their their new chief executive Dave Lewis really has to turn it around. And what about the German discounters? They've been gobbling up market share this year, and they've been going slightly up market, or is that just an illusion? Well, 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 that, well. That's the debate to be had. I suppose again, uh, as Tom said before, all things are relative. It was, it was whether you can call Lidl or Aldi up market, but certainly Aldi, for example, who've been growing much, much faster than Lidl, um, and Aldi have now about twelve or thirteen percent market share. Um, for example, they um, um, they've sourced a, a fresh range of top quality Bordeaux wines, um, which they're selling for about forty, maybe fifty uh, uh, euros a bottle. Some of those wines might cost you hundred euros a bottle somewhere else. Um, if you look at Lidl, for example, they've brought in uh, in-store bakeries. Um, 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 the mood of Irish consumers is changing. They're not so austerity led, uh, and they're willing to treat themselves a little bit. You see in Lidl, you see in Ali, there's more deluxe ranges on the shelves, more brands on the shelves. So um, there's a sort of a, uh, everybody maybe is heading back towards the bland middle again. Yeah, and Irish consumers are going to get a little kicker uh, from January onwards in their wages as a result of budget measures in last October's uh, budget. Will that feed through to increased retail sales? 
it, 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 it may do, but only in a modest sense. I mean, retail sales, if you exclude cars, rose by about 4.6% in volume over the first 11 months of the year, but only 2.1% in value. So they're still discounting in order to try and get people through the doors. Um, for example, Colin McCrilla, the, the chief economist at Davies, says he, he doesn't expect retail sales to grow by much more than 2% next year. Um, so Irish consumers are still cautious. Um, and there's, you know, there's not going to be an explosion of spending. Um, this Christmas will be the best Christmas retail sales since 2007, but it won't be a bumper Christmas for them either. I mean, the latest sendings that we were getting in the run-up to Christmas um, um, from the retailers was that good, but not quite as good as we hoped. Laura, are you a, a Tesco super value or discounter shopper? Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting in Ireland. I'm not sure if Tesco has the same level of competition uh, from the, um, the upmarket uh, that it does have in the UK, where they have Waitrose and Morrisons. and, and that, uh, They're very much the squeezed middle in the UK, um, where I think their positioning is a little bit different in, in Ireland. Uh, also, we haven't moved to the same extent as the UK towards online shopping for groceries. It's just far less common here than it is in the UK. Um, and even physical, you know, going into stores in the UK has moved from the out-of-town hypermarket model towards the, the local convenience shop and, and Tesco's had to just, you know, it's really kind of fast reverse on that Leahy era. Um, so I'm not sure if those trends have followed through here as much, but they, they Tesco definitely definitely has some problems and that they, they do need to address. And, and um, the problem, I think, is that Dave Lewis hasn't quite specified how he is going to deal with it. I think he's more or less said, well, I don't have a strategy yet. I'll come back to you on that one. Um, so that's why all the analysts are looking at Tesco and saying, you know, we don't recognise this company from the, the, the Tescopoly days uh, where they seem to be so invincible, but it turned out to be, I suppose, a little bit just of its time, perhaps. Okay, Laura, you've been covering media stories all year. It's been a busy year on the media front. I guess the big story of the year is UTV Ireland's entry into the market. It's going to come in 2015. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, um, John McCann, who is the chief executive of UTV Media uh, PLC, uh, he dropped in the licence application. It was actually in November of 2013. Um, but they've spent... 13 months, you know, getting the channel up on air and he more or less admitted last week that it's been, you know, almost frantic, I think were the words he used. Um, it was an ambitious timescale. It is coming together. They haven't quite got the uh, edit tape I heard earlier uh, ready for um, the very, you know, opening seconds of, of the channel that's still in the mix, you know, so there's, there's finishing touches to be done. Um, Pat Kenny, who uh, slightly surprisingly perhaps was their sort of star uh, signing, um, he's going to be doing a chat show from, for them from about March or April, but he's also going to feature on the New Year's Day schedule. Um, of course, it's going to have Coronation Street in Emmerdale yeah, the time as well. Yeah, I mean, it? Emmerdale will be on the first night as well because it's Thursday. So it's um, so it's uh, it's 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 really kind of a little bit of a buzz about television, Irish television at the moment, because obviously their launches as you know, TV Three and RTE are having to sharpen up their act, and you know, TV Three are putting up some big movies. Um, on January 1st and, and, and January 2nd in the early evening um, schedule. I think it's uh, the Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol and uh, the latest one of the, one of the latest Transformers movies. So they are they are trying to counter that. They've had to put in a whole new uh, schedule. Um, I was at a preview this uh, today of um, their soap Red Rock, which is going to air in the 8:30 slot on Wednesdays and Thursdays. Um, I was very impressed. Um, I mean, it, it's it's early days, and in a way, actually, a soap shouldn't be judged from the beginning because a soap is all about how it con- how it weaves in storylines on a continuing, open ended basis. But I was impressed. It was it was funny. It was dramatic. It was a fast paced 
effort. Um, there's a little bit of um, co- product placement, you know, because ultimately it is all about money. Uh, cost cost cutters are, have have quite are quite prominent, I think, on the opening credits as part of their their product placement deal. And there will okay. be a cost cutters in the show. But this is this is how this is what they have to do to 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 make money. You know, the the television advertising market is is fiercely competitive now. You've got all the overseas stations as well, and they're just hoping, I guess, that. Uh, you know that the market overall will rise, so that nobody will suffer too much. But it is going to be tough. Okay, let's talk about RTE. It's still cash strapped. I think that's uh, that's the point you're going to be making in mm. your year-end review about uh, media. They've also got challenges in relation to Two FM and RT Two Television. Love hate uh, a big success for them, but they also lost Pat Kenny during the year. One of their big presenter talents, if you like. But they've got Ray Darcy yeah. now coming over from Today FM. How would you sum it up in relation to RT? Well, um, well, just starting off with radio, you know, Pat Kenny left um, in autumn of 2013, but we did see, um, it was this year that we saw the slide in, in the Radio 1 ratings, uh, albeit from a very dominant position. But it was across the board, you know, it can't just be, it's not about just Sean O'Rourke versus Pat Kenny. The whole daytime schedule on Radio 1 sort of went into a bit of decline now. Again, maybe that's just natural because they they have such a huge share of of the market. Um, but they, they, you know they they they've they've poached Ray Darcy. They've put him in the Derek Mooney slot in the afternoon slot. So it's I think the the phrase is carrying the torch from Live Lion to, to drive time. Um, but really, you know, he's going to be their face of TV as well. You know, so that they can they can get the most out, out of out of Darcy. And it is it is a good move I think for both Ray Darcy and for RTE. Um, but you know they haven't. You know they have obviously. You know to say that RTE is cash strapped. You know the other broadcasters laugh at that because uh, they have the license, the license fee. fee. They have the license fee. Um, you know they're not as exposed to advertising as the other. That's the what others. a couple of hundred million a year. Yeah. Uh, um, well, it's 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 about 180 million or 170 million. It's 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 it has gone down slightly in recent years. Although of course the big problem has for them has been the absolute collapse in television advertising. Uh, and there has been speculation in recent weeks that they might seek to monetize the, the Montrose yeah. uh, complex. Yeah, I think they have to monetize everything they can. I mean, uh, Especially you know, with the, the property market. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, I, I don't know about, I, I, I don't know about whether or not they will jump on, jump into anything like that, but they certainly, there's, um, there's money to be made from 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 their facilities, and that's 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 surely has to be part of, surely has to be part of the plan. But um, you know, there is there is a there is a problem because it's still you know they have a lot of costs they have a lot of costs that the other broadcasters don't have. So um, you know they still have to do quite a bit of news and current affairs coverage. You know um, you know as part of their their statutory obligation. Um, so you know, there's been one one sort of example of this is every time RTE executives go to the uh, Rockdus Committee, the Communications Committee, they always get asked about you know, are you going to have a London correspondent? You know, they've been asked that repeatedly ever since they closed the London office. And uh, finally, towards and the, the end of the yes. year, they did say, you know, they said all along they will we'll do it when we can. And they finally, the answer is now, which is which is okay. which is good because there is an election coming up. It's important for them to 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 to, to be present in the city. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704 1845. 
visit irislifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life September 2014. Suzanne Lynch, you've been patiently waiting on the phone. Thank you for that. Uh, 2014, a year when the Eurozone debt crisis abated, but arguably more serious uh, challenges have emerged. Low growth, falling inflation and persistently high unemployment. What's happening? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. I mean, this year started off quite positively. Um, us in Ireland, we started the year 2014 just after coming out of the bailout. And Portugal exited the bailout in May. It was a little bit more uncertain, but they did and made a, made a clean exit in the end. And then towards the end of the year, we see Greece um, about to exit its bailout. Um, although, again, not sure about the actual timing of that. But what has also happened is that arguably things have really slowed down and entrenched in terms of the of the gloomy economic uh, picture. So, you know, as you say here, said there, uh, one of the main problems is, is this persistently low inflation. It's been falling, 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 and now it's stuck at around 0.3%. We've also got the um, lack of growth um, across the European economy, and particularly even in countries like Germany. And this is what's really worrying people. Now, Germany has been um, affected by the Russian sanctions, for example, but it's also been affected by um, by low growth in other Eurozone countries, you know, its trading partners. So um, that's an issue. So I think the debate is now, again, returning to, you know, where... Where does responsibility lie in Europe to, to kickstart growth? Should it be the European Commission, and there's a new com- commission in, should it be national member states, or should it be the ECB, and whether they need to be more aggressive in trying to tackle the problem of low growth in, in Europe? And in terms of the ECB, Suzanne, will we see any meaningful quantitative, e- quantitative easing in 2015? Well, this is a big question. I mean, Mario Draghi indicated earlier this year that they would uh, expand the balance sheet by one trillion. But there's a lot of divisions still within the ECB governing council. Obviously, Germany, a very strong voice on this. Um, so um, it looks like people may still be disappointed at the um, at the extent of action taken by the ECB next year. One thing that might be worth keeping an eye on is this EU investment plan. Obviously, Jean-Claude Juncker came to the, to the helm of the European Commission this year and within his first month announced this new 315 billion investment plan. Now, a lot of people were quick to criticise it by pointing out there's no new money in this. It, it consists of a, of a 21 billion euro fund, which leveraged, uh, they're looking at 50, raising 15 times that amount. Um, but the other way of looking at it is, is that it is something quite innovative if they can pull it off, because the argument is there's a lot of money, there's a lot of finance out there in Europe, but that it's just not getting channeled into EU investment projects. So um, the Commission is talking about going on investor roadshows across Europe, trying to drum up investor interest. So if this was to happen, and if they can kind of ensure that there's a pipeline of projects, this could be potentially quite something quite radical in terms of trying to encourage investment uh, in Europe rather than just kind of giving out grants. Uh, that's the way the EU has traditionally been. So, so that might be something to watch. But then, you know, you're up against um, the other argument, which is uh, obviously the EU was, was criticised a lot about austerity measures. And, you know, are we seeing a sign that Juncker and the new commission is moving away from that? Well, they're quick to say also, hang on, countries still need to do structural reforms. They still have to retrench in terms of spending and they still have to be within EU budget uh, deficit and debt targets. So whether we see a real change in the European Commission policy remains to be seen. 
and corporate tax is obviously going to be on the horizon in the new year. And you mentioned John Claude Juncker; he's obviously a former uh, political leader in Luxembourg. The whole LuxLeaks uh, issue of uh, recent weeks has put the spotlight very much on him and his administration um, during that time, and the kind of deals that they did for large corporations to help them avoid paying uh, tax. Might the new year bring further pressure on him? Put pressure on his position. Yes, absolutely. Well, not so much him, because I think what's happening with Jean-Claude Juncker is that now he's moved to the Commission, what he's in fact done is is um, have pledged to increase the clampdown at an EU level on, on taxation and corporate tax planning. Like, this is not good news for Ireland. Um, Ireland's already been identified as one of three countries that they've opened an investigation into, um, and we should have a, a judgment on the Commission's case into Ireland's tax arrangements with Apple early next year. Um, but there's no doubt about it, the LuxLeaks scandal um, has put corporate uh, tax right on the, up the European agenda. Um, and there's now a French man, Pierre Moscovici, is the European Economics Commissioner. He has already said within the first few weeks of taking office that he's going to be looking at things like tax harmonisation, about um, greater cooperation between countries on EU tax. Now, I mean, Irish officials would stress, look, under EU law, it's limited what what the EU can do that you need effectively every country has a veto if you want to, want to change tax and that measures but there are a certain amount of things it is going to be able to do for example early next year it's bringing forward a directive on um, automatically that countries will have to automatically share information regarding tax rulings the tax the comfort letters they offer companies so that would be a big change um, so I think over the next year and even two or three years this is going to be a, a major focus for Ireland in terms of its relationship uh, with the European Union. Okay. Tom, I'm going to come back to you. It was an interesting year on the banking front and we couldn't let it go without mentioning the Anglo trial. It was a a big news story uh, earlier this year and we had some very interesting evidence given by uh, some of the participants, uh, but it, it wasn't such a good event for Patrick Neary. No, it wasn't, Kieran. I mean, ultimately, the Anglo trial uh, ended up with uh, two Anglo bankers getting non-custodial uh, sentences. They were found guilty, and and Sean Fitzpatrick, the former chairman of the bank, uh, being found uh, innocent. Uh, but what really came across in the Anglo trial was the performance of Patrick Neary, as you said there. I mean, he said, I don't recall 30 times. I don't know 23 times. I can't recall 12 times. I can't, don't, cannot remember 12 times. And that's a complete blank to me of absolutely no recollection and a few other comments sort of like that. Uh which really demolished uh, the state's case. I mean, his performance... And this is the man who was in charge of financial regulation in the run-up in, to the crash. Yeah, this was, this was at a time where you had Sean Quinn, uh, Ireland's then richest man and owner of an insurance company, betting his entire fortune on the country's third biggest bank. And uh, the financial regulator basically can't remember a thing about what happened and uh, it was the most incredible performance his 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 time in the box uh, was just astounding and uh, people were literally picking their their jaws off the floor so often that, uh, as he as he continuously said I don't know what was going on uh, and uh, I didn't keep any notes and I'm, like why would you expect a financial regulator to keep notes of like important meetings like meeting the country's richest man urgently or things like a banker uh, David Drum ringing up and saying I'm in trouble I think the bank is going to collapse I mean why on earth would you take notes? Yeah, uh, just going to our retail banks, uh, they've rebounded into profit. It was a pretty good year for AIB and for for David Duffy. Came through the stress test, a back in profit. It was a whopping half year profit, uh, well ahead of expectations. And the expectation now, very much, is that some private equity will come into the business, possibly in two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, this is. Uh, I think that this year, David Duffy will be seen as a 
done a lot of the hard work without getting the real reward, which is that private uh, equity interest in investing in the bank. And I think that's going to be his challenge for next year, Kieran. And I think things do seem to be looking very positive for him as the Irish market recovers, as the bank has fixed its balance sheet, it's cut a lot of costs. And uh, if he can reduce uh, the, the, the state's stake in the bank, which is currently 99%, if, if he can reduce that and bring in a good partner going forward, I think we can see AIB begin to return to normalcy, uh, just as Bank of Ireland uh, is already. Suzanne, just going back to you for a moment, uh, we have a new banking union. We have the uh, single single supervisory mechanism now in charge, uh, effectively in charge of financial regulation right across the Eurozone. Will that have any positive impacts, do you think, on the sector in 2015? Yeah, I mean, this year we've seen this move towards greater, I suppose, consolidation and integration of the European banking sector and effectively a greater seeding of sovereignty and, and national supervision powers over banks. So um, since November, officially, uh, the ECB has taken over supervising uh, Eurozone banks, including our own uh, main Irish banks. Now, I mean, in a way, this is a response to what a lot of people have argued needed to be in place since the start of the single currency, that, you know, it's impossible to have uh, a shared currency um, and have all these fragmented banking systems. Um, so uh, now a lot of the supervision will still be done at local local level um, and the ECB will be still depending on people people in the, in, the, in the different national central banks. Um, but it's still a significant move and, and it's significant, I suppose, watershed in the history of, of the European Union that now banks in, in different countries are going to be supervised directly by Frankfurt. So it is quite a change. Mark Paul, we'll move back to retailing for a moment and uh, take a look at Arnest. 2015 could be a very important year for the country's oldest department store. It's got two big blocks of owners and each of them wants to take the other out, if you like. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's it. Um, 50% of, uh, of Arnest now is owned by uh, a consortium between Gale and Weston, who owns Brown Thomas, and, and Noel Smith, who is a developer behind the Square Shopping Centre in Tala. They bought um, the, the half of Arnest that was controlled by Ulster Bank. They bought the loans in, in relation to that. The other half, um, which was put up for sale by NAMA, um, now you know, Noel Smith and Gale and Weston would have fancied their chances for those loans, but uh, in something of a surprise move, they were bought by Apollo Management. Um, a US investment house uh, who are actually advised by Brian Goggin, a former chief executive of Bank of Ireland. Um, it's a little bit of a quandary for the management of uh, of, of Arnest. They just want to get on with things and uh, and and and, uh, and develop the department store and uh, and and you know try and get back to a, a position of sustained profitability. Um, but they've got these. I suppose it's like being caught in the middle of two uh, uh, two parents having an argument or something like that. They 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 just want the thing resolved. Ray Hearn, the chief executive of Arnest, was out in the media in recent weeks saying, "Look, this thing needs to be sorted out." Um, and one side just needs to buy the other out. Um, so you know, n- neither side has a has a financial advantage, so to speak. They both own 50%, um, so they're going to have to strike a deal. Um, Galen Weston, uh, who, uh, who, as I mentioned, owns Brown Thomas, uh, supposedly his vision for Arnott's is that it will be the sort of the mid-market version of Brown Thomas. Um, Arnott's, uh, in, in the glory years and the boom years, really tried to compete directly with Brown Thomas. It went up the price point scale, and they brought in a lot of top brands. But and a shop from Conran, which anytime I'm in the store, there's never anybody in it. No, no, indeed. And, and, and Galen Weston's vision is to, is, is to bring it down to the midpoint level, um, and and obviously then to maintain Brown Thomas at the top level. And um, we don't know what Apollo's vision is uh, um, for, for Arnott's. But, you know, it's, it's the grand old dame of, of, of Dublin retailing. You know, it has a special place uh, in, in, in the hearts of a lot of Dubliners. Um, there's a lot of heritage and history attached to the store. Um, and that's, that, that's something that's, that, that will probably be resolved sometime in, in 2015. Tom, you've covered the Arnott's story. The, the loans were previously held by Ulster Bank and IBRC. It's a bit of a 
bit of a mess now, really, isn't it? Yeah, well, if you, you do have this 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 standoff between the two sides, Kieran, and like when you look at you know for twenty sixteen, uh, you know the the anniversary of the Easter Easter Rising, you would have hoped that uh, we would finally have seen that site developed because. It's, some of it goes on to O'Connell Street, so it could really lift the entire O'Connell Street area, which which does need a lift. Uh, but as it is, we've got this the two sides holding off, and uh, my understanding is that you know Galen Weston's side has, has has offered to Apollo and has, has engaged with them to try and uh, buy out their side of things. But uh, as the Irish economy recovers, as the property market goes up. Uh, both sides, you know, they can see that you know that, that that they've done quite good deals, and that uh, there could be more value to be realised. So at the moment, it doesn't look like there's a deal to be done. Okay. Finally, we'll just end with Laura. Uh, go back to media and talk about uh, independent news and media during the year. The editorship of both the Irish Independent and the Sunday Independent changed. Um, Claire Grady at the Irish Independent and Harris at the Sunday Independent we're awaiting news of the new editors Uh, they're going to be in place obviously for the, the new year what should we expect? Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, these editorships aren't quite what they used to be because uh, Stephen Ray is editor in chief of of INM, so the, these two people will be his key key lieutenants uh, rather than being, I suppose, completely in charge of those particular titles. I mean, INM actually kind of sums up quite a lot of the sort of, I suppose, the sort of the mixed kind of picture for the media in 2014 in a sense that although they were investing in some of their digital operations, they were also a number of cutbacks in, in various parts at the start of the year. Um, there was some um, production cutbacks and later in the year um, there were cutbacks at the Herald and the Sunday World, although I understand they haven't fully uh, merged yet. Um, so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mixed picture. So it, it'll be interesting to see which you know what their future um, sort of the tone of those newspapers will be in, uh, going forward. I mean, Anne Harris, uh, you know, people will say that you know she was she understood the the Sunday Independent what what it's there for, which is a major cash yeah. generator for the group. Yeah, and the, you know, still the, the highest selling newspaper in Ireland. I mean, circulation is under pressure. You know, in every newspaper, every what, print. Is it a million readers a week. Tom, you'd notice you you worked for the newspaper. You worked for Anne Harris. Yeah, I did. Uh, and uh, as I as I understand it, uh, she this is the twenty first of December is her final newspaper. Uh, she has. They've had a, a very good run of stories lately. Uh, their market share is at its highest level ever. It's thirty one point five percent. Even though the sales still are falling, but relative to the other titles within the group, they're holding pretty steady. Uh, I think that whoever replaces her, it's going to be, it'll be very hard to fill her shoes. She is a big personality. Uh, she would be very different to Stephen Ray, whose background is, you know, the Garda Review and the, the Evening Herald. Um, whereas Anne is, you know, she is, she's, she's somebody who's got great vision and she's a leader. And uh, you would hope that the Sunday Independent, whether people like it or not, it provokes a reaction. And uh, that's something that you have to say that people talk about the Sunday Independent. Maybe they don't with other titles. Um, Laura? Dennis O'Brien, who's obviously the uh, the biggest shareholder in INM, he gave an interview during the year to the Sunday Business Post where he said, you know, in the future he did think there probably would only be one or two newspapers in Ireland. So I think that's that's a prediction that a lot of people would, would agree with. Um, one or two. I mean, that's a big question. You know, it's a big difference between whether there's one and whether there's two. Um, but, I mean, as I said, being a bit of a mixed year for the media, 
media. You have companies like Journal Media who are expanding, and obviously uh, UTV and, T- and TV3. Yeah, as mm. we mentioned. But, you know, as well as various job cuts at INM, we had uh, Landmark Media, which is the company that owns the Irish Examiner and a number of local titles. You know, they've been cutting back. And, it, you know, the, the picture is, is a little bit, you know, it's, it's in and flux. And the Metro Herald, of course, is gone. So the print is, is, is in, in, in flux. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's finishing up now. Tom, any insights as to what Anne Harris plans in 2015? Uh, no, uh, I, I don't know yet. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I would imagine, you know, if you consider when she took on the job, uh, her husband, Angus Fanning, who was the previous editor, had just died. Uh, she was in work uh, and at her desk within three or four days. That's incredibly and dramatic has, for her. You know, has pretty much uh, been working straight out for three years. So I'd imagine she's going to take a break. Uh, but she is somebody who lives and breeds newspapers and stories. So uh, I imagine she's going to reinvent herself in some way or other. Okay, that's it from the Irish Times Business Podcast for this year. I'd like to offer my thanks to Mark Paul, Laura Slattery, Tom Lyons and Suzanne Lynch for their contributions to the show. I'd also like to thank researcher Declan Conlon, producer Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer JJ Vernon for their help with the show. Don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. I'd also like to wish Tom Lyons well on his move to the Sunday Business Post in the new year. He's also getting married next month, so good luck to Tom and Lynn. I'm Kieran Hancock on until 2015. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all.